Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. Good morning, Epicos. Hey, good morning. My name is Frank. I am the Mayfair Road campus pastor. I'm also one of the preaching pastors, and so I'm glad to be here. If you have your Bible, open to John chapter 14. That's where we're going to be today. And while you're turning, I want to talk specifically to like the, uh, the elder millennials in the room who may have gone to youth group around the turn of the century. I want us to talk about some uh, suppressed memories that you may have uh, called Christian music in the 90s, all right? Um, the 90s were a wild time for Christian music. Uh, and, and you might, so, so let me just talk about some of them. You may have heard of like Toby Mac today, but back then in the 90s, he was in a hip hop boy band called DC Talk. And um, their big hit song was called Jesus Freak. All right. And when I heard it, I thought that was the heaviest song ever made. It, it felt so heavy. That song made middle schoolers across the country so hyped for Jesus, we were ready to smuggle Bibles into China, right? Like, we were just like, oh, Jesus! Like we were so into it, right? Um, I, and I know, and, and, so, and some of y'all may have seen this band uh, a couple weeks ago. There's a band called Newsboys, and they've been around for like over 30 years. Like, they just don't die type of thing, you know what I'm saying? And before they made the song God's Not Dead, which is probably their most popular song right now, they had a song called Breakfast. And let me read the lyrics to the chorus because these were real lyrics that we sang in youth group every Wednesday night. When the toast has burned and all the milk has turned, and Captain Crunch is waving farewell. When the big one finds you, may this song remind you that they don't serve breakfast in hell. That's a real lyric that we were singing. And we were just like, yeah, dude, I don't want to go to hell. They ain't got Pop-Tarts. Like, we were, we were for real, like, hating, the he- hating hell because they didn't have, you know, breakfast. And then there was a band that I want to talk about that, that kind of ties to my message today, a band called Audio Adrenaline. And, and they had a song in the 90s, a really big song called Big House. And it was, it was like a song that kind of described what heaven is like. And I want to read the chorus to you. It said, come and go with me to my father's house. Come and go with me to my father's house. It's a big, big house with lots and lots of room, a big, big table with lots and lots of food, a big, big yard where we can play football, a big, big house, it's my father's house. That was the song, and that song got me so hyped for heaven because I was like, oh man, I'm gonna play football all the time, I'm gonna recruit John because he's fast according to the Bible, like, I'm just so stoked about like going to heaven to play football. That was literally my mindset. So, if this brought any nostalgia, or you want to go down a long memory trail, uh, I want to encourage you, go to my Instagram, Pastor Frank Gill. I got a bunch of songs on there, videos, and playlists of, of a Spotify playlist of all like the 90s, 2000 songs that were like the soundtrack of my adolescence. And I want to encourage you to go there to either be nostalgic or cringe, whatever you decide. Now, here's why I brought those songs up. It was around that time, around middle school and high school, when I realized that when I had like really bad, anxious moments, like I had anxiety or, 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 or like fear or worry, that Christian music calmed me down. 
And so like when everybody else in the football team was listening to like Eminem and Little John and, and like Disturbed or something, I was listening to like Chris Tomlin, all right? I was, I was like, our God is an awesome. Like I was, I was vibing to Jesus music back then. And then I would, like when I would study in college, when I was writing papers, I was getting anxious about the work, I would listen to Christian music to help me with my stress. Now, today I have playlists on Spotify from bands like Citizens, King's Kaleidoscope, Ascend the Hill, these worship bands that had like these upward focused messages and it really like calms my heart when I'm anxious. And so I want to ask you this question. When you're anxious and worried, what do you do? Where do you go and how do you cope? When you're anxious and worried, where do you go how do you cope? Because here's what's happening. At the end of John 13... Jesus makes all of his disciples super anxious and worried. Like, Jesus wanted to wash his disciples' feet. Peter was like, you can't wash my feet, Jesus. Jesus is like, but I got to. I'm trying to prove a point. And Peter is like, then wash my whole body. And Jesus is like, no, that's weird. Then Jesus talks to, says that, that someone in that room is going to betray him. And then Judas is like not making eye contact with anybody. And he sneaks out the room. And then Jesus says that he has to go somewhere. And where he's about to go, they can't go with him. And Peter was like, nah, man, I'm right or die. Wherever you go, I go. We'll go together, right? And Jesus is like, you're going to betray me before morning. Like, what are you talking about? And so everyone is flustered. Everyone's anxious. Everyone's worried. So for the next few chapters, Jesus is going to be comforting his worried and anxious disciples. And we're going to start in chapter 14, verse 1. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And so everyone is anxious and worried. And in verse 1, Jesus basically says, hey, stop it, right? And, like, I've, I've been a pastor long enough to know when someone's having an actual anxiety attack, you know what doesn't work? Telling them to stop it, <laughs> right? It doesn't work. But Jesus has good reason to tell his disciples that they shouldn't be anxious. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to a, prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. So regardless if you are a Christian or not, we live in a culture, a society that has a lot of presuppositions and opinions of what the afterlife is like or what heaven is like. So I just sang that audio adrenaline song, right? We, we were growing up saying, you know, we live in a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms, a big, big table with lots and lots of food. And then if you grew up near a King James Bible, that word rooms is actually translated as mansions. And so maybe growing up you heard that like when you go to heaven, you're going to have a big mansion, right? I remember I was flirting with this girl in, in youth group in high school and I said, hey girl, uh, I hope when we get to heaven, our mansions are next to each other. <laughs> she ghosted me, like, the rest of high school after that. Like, she didn't talk to me. Um, there, 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 then there's also, like, shows like The Good Place, which depicts heaven basically as a place where, where you can do whatever you want, have as much fun as you want, and just eat, like, frozen yogurt all day, right? Like, that's what The Good Place depicts as heaven. And I think that there is a problem in the way that we talk about the afterlife in heaven. Because I think when we talk about heaven, we treat it as if it's like an all-inclusive resort. That if we do all the right things here on earth, we'll get to go to that all-inclusive resort and like never have to worry about anything ever again. But I don't think that's how the Bible talks about heaven or why we would want to be there. 
right? Like Jesus says, he is going to prepare a place for you. Where is that place? It's in my father's house. The point of Jesus leaving and then coming back is to bring us to the father. I'm afraid that there are, there are too many people who call themselves Christians who are looking more forward to a fun afterlife than being in the presence of the Father. That, that is not how the Bible describes heaven. So the, the psalmist in Psalm 73 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength and my heart and my portion forever. Our reward is God. We are saved for God. We get to be with God. Our portion and our prize is that we get to be with God in his house, which becomes our home, and we get to be there forever. That is a reward of being a Christian. We get God. The disciples are anxious, but they are told to trust that Jesus is serving them by going away. And so he is comforting by telling them that he is going to prepare a place for them in the house of God forever. And he then reminds them that these people know how to get there. Let's read verse 4. And now, sorry, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way. And the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Write this down. Here's the first point. Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only way. This verse is one of the most famous verses in the Bible, but it's also one of the most offensive to those who reject Christianity. Because it feels like Jesus is being really exclusive in this verse. It feels like he is saying that other religious experiences and traditions are not a valid way to get to God. It feels like that Jesus is saying that there is absolutely no other way to God except through Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. But, but, but take note of the context. He, he isn't saying this to slam people with different beliefs. He isn't saying this to mock the idea of tolerance. He is saying this to comfort his anxious friends. His friends are anxious and worried, and Jesus is reminding them that he's going to go make a place for them, and they know how to get there. That way is through Jesus. It's through him. It, the way is through Jesus. All truth and reality is found in Jesus. True life is only realized in Jesus. And he is saying you don't have to be anxious because you have the GPS coordinates. You know how to get there. You're looking at him and his name is Jesus. We live in a world that wants to recognize multiple truths as equal. We call that moral relativism. And, and, and the idea that is my truth is valid and real, and your truth is valid and real. And if those truths contradict to each other, it doesn't matter. Um, all truths are valid and real. And I want to say this as graciously as I can. I don't buy it. Because first off, no one really believes that. Like, if someone were to lie about you right now, talk behind your back, gossip and slander about you, say crazy things that aren't true about you, you know what you're not going to do? You're not going to say, well, that's their truth. No. 
You would defend yourself like, no, that is a lie. I got receipts. What you're saying isn't true. We would all do that. Moreover, when it comes to faith, every major world religion holds core doctrines and beliefs that contradict and reject every other religion. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, all of them in their core doctrines say that the other religions aren't true. So, so Christianity is exclusive in the sense that there is no other way to God except through Jesus. And listen, we shouldn't be ashamed of that. Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am unashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of salvation. It's the power of God for salvation. What, why should I be afraid, or sorry, why should I be ashamed of the only thing that brings salvation in this world? We shouldn't be ashamed of that. It shouldn't make us uncomfortable or weird to say Jesus is the only way. I want to read those words again because I think when we read that passage, we sometimes focus on the wrong thing. And I think Jesus is being very intentional with his words. I'm going to read it again. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father. Now let me stop right there. Jesus would be right in stopping the sentence right there. He could have. He could have said that no one comes to the Father. Y'all have sinned, y'all have messed up, y'all have sinned against the holy God, you have chosen creation over the creator, and what would be fair is that you get what you deserve, and what you deserve is separation from God for all eternity. God, Jesus would have been fair to say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and y'all can't do anything about it, y'all can't get to the Father. He would have been fair to say that, but he doesn't. What does he say? He says, no one comes to the Father except through me. This is an exclusive statement that has an inclusive invitation in it. I'm going to say that again. John 14.6 is an exclusive statement that has an inclusive invitation in it. No one comes to the Father. That's exclusive. But where's the invitation? Except through me. He's inviting you into this one singular way to Jesus. It's an invitation to the whole world. This might be the most inclusive thing Jesus has ever said. In a world that is dark with sin and death, there is a single door. And that door is open and the light of the world is shining through it. And that door is Jesus. And Jesus is the only way. We, we shouldn't be offended or shocked when Jesus says that there's no other way to God except through him. What should surprise us, what should shock us, is that there even is a way. The fact that, there, that, that God in his mercy and his compassion and his grace even provides a way, though we have given him no reason to do so, though all we consistently do is reject him and mock him in this world, the fact that God makes a way is a mercy and grace that none of us deserve. What should be surprising and shocking in this verse is that God even made a way. And that way is through Jesus alone. Jesus is the only way. If you're here today and you struggle with this concept of Jesus being the only way and this idea that other world religions don't lead to God, I want to encourage you to send an email to Pastor Tommy. Set up a time to talk to your campus pastor and kind of walk through that. Or maybe if you want to understand what does it mean that Jesus is the only way, Pastor Tommy would love to walk through with you on that. But Jesus is the only way. Let's continue. Verse 7. 
If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. Now, how, how can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me speaks his, in me, does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus says that if you have seen him, you've seen the Father. And Philip doesn't get this. Philip says, show us the Father and like, it'll be enough. Like, if you just give us a peek of the Father, like, we'll do anything. And Jesus is saying, what are you talking about? Like, we've been here, we've been walking together for three years. We've been living with each other, talking to each other for three years. How do you not get it? Everything Jesus has said is on behalf of the Father. Everything Jesus has done is according to the Father's will. Like, like, like Jesus isn't hiding this. What Philip shows us, what Philip shows us is that you can be around Jesus, read Jesus' words for years, and still don't know who Jesus is. Jesus is the perfect representative of the Father in heaven. You want to know how the Father would respond to something? Look to Jesus. You want to know how the Father would think about something? Look to Jesus. And in explaining this connection and beautiful union with the Father, Jesus is making something abundantly clear. And here's your second point. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. I, I'm baffled when people say that Jesus never said he was God. The literal reason why the Pharisees murdered Jesus was because he considered himself equal with God. Moreover, here in John 14, he is saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This passage and others like it it's what helps us understand the doctrine of the Trinity. The Trinity is one God existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Understanding that I didn't say that there are three gods, nor did I say there are three manifestations of God. The triune God is three unique persons who are all in the Godhead. And I, and I wish I could give you some kind of object lesson, some kind of illustration. But the thing I've learned over the years is that whenever you do an illustration to explain the Trinity, you're probably teaching heresy. Like you're probably saying something wrong in the illustration. Because the Trinity can be somewhat complex. But the best picture I have is this illustration that, that is from the 12th century that I... I actually put in your bulletins if you want to grab that. I also have it on the screen. It's this diagram that kind of explains how the Trinity functions. And, and I love it because I think it does a good job. It says that the Father is God. The Son, Jesus Christ, is God. The Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father. One God, three persons. And the Trinity is important because at creation, in Genesis 1... The Trinity is there. Like multiple times it's referenced. Let me show you the one that I think is the most powerful. Genesis 1.26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. We have to ask ourselves, who is God talking to? Because it's not humanity. He hasn't made them yet. And it's not the angels. Because the Bible, nowhere does it say that we're creating the image of angels. 
What we see here in Genesis 1.26, it is the Trinity conferring with themselves that they're going to create you and I in the image of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Nothing else in creation has the image of the Trinity stamped on them except for you and I. Beyond that, the whole Trinity is at work in your salvation. The Father loves you and he sends his Son to die on the cross for your sins for you. The Son does die on the cross for your sins. He's buried and he rose again three days later. And then the Son, Jesus, promises to send you a helper who's going to keep you, seal you for the day of salvation. And beyond that, he's going to help you convict you of your sins and grow in him. That helper is the Holy Spirit. A simple way I'd love to say it is this. The Father wants to purchase you for himself. The Son is the payment for your sins. And the Holy Spirit is the receipt that the payment went through. All three persons of the Trinity is at work in your salvation. Now all of that is fun and theological. And I can geek out talking to you about how the Trinity is seen from Genesis to Revelation. But I understand this can be somewhat confusing. So I made a blog post. If you go to thehub.epicus.org, if you scroll down, there's a link. And there's a bunch of resources and videos and links all about today's um, sermon about the Trinity and much more. So you can go to the hub to find that. But here's what I want you to understand about why the Trinity matters in this specific context here in John 14. The Father, let me say this, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit lived in perfect community in eternity past. And they were never in need of anything. They were in perfect love and community and joy and peace. But when God decided to create humanity, it wasn't because he was lonely. It wasn't because he was bored. And it wasn't because he needed something from us. The Trinity was perfectly content before anything was created. But God wanted to make a people for himself to experience the amazing kind of love and joy and peace and community that was in the Godhead that could be only experienced within the Godhead. So he created you and me. But you know how that went. We screwed up, right? We brought sin into this world. And again, God would have been fair to say, well, y'all done messed up. And to throw us in a cosmic trash can. God would have been fair to do so. But he doesn't. God chooses to pursue you. Why? It's not because he needs you. Remember, God doesn't need anything. But God pursues you because he wants you. And being wanted by God is so much better than being needed. So when you go through that dark night of your soul that we talked about last week with Pastor Ed. And you're feeling the anxiety and stress of this world, you can rest because the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, whom we are created in the image of, is at work wanting you to be in his family. He's, he's pursuing you, he's preserving you, and he's keeping you and molding you and shaping you so that you can be in his family forever and ever. The triune God, who doesn't need anything from you, is pursuing you because he wants you and he made a way for you. And that's good. Again, I understand the Trinity is a complex conversation. It's a complex doctrine. If you go to the hub, you can get more information. But here's the thing I want you to remember. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Let's continue. Verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. The final point I want you to write down is this. Jesus is still at work. Jesus is still at work. 
So Jesus says, whoever believes in him will do a greater works than what Jesus did. Can I tell you what that doesn't mean? All right. Uh, a couple weeks ago in September, we had, all four campuses had a fall kickoff, right? We, ours was called Mayfair Mania. That's what we called our event. It was super fun. I was so excited because there were a lot of people there, people who have been in Epicos for years, as well as people who were brand new to Epicos, like people from the community were coming. And this was our very first fall kickoff at, at Mayfair Road. So I was really, really excited to like, get to know people and talk to people and be with people. And so my hope is I lined up four food trucks to be there to be able to feed everyone. But unfortunately, none of the food trucks showed up. They just didn't show up. Actually, that's not true. One showed up, but here's the thing. They didn't bring food. Like they were there for an hour and they just said they didn't have the food's coming. What, what are you here for? <laughs> yeah. And so, so I, I'm stressing. Like, it was a hot day, but I was double sweating, okay? It was, it was a stressful day. And, and so I was just like, like, you know what I wish I could have done? I wish I could go into the food pantry, take a loaf of bread and some tuna, bless it, multiply it, and be able to feed everybody like Jesus did. That's what I wish I could have. That would have been a greater work, right? But I can't do that. So I ended up telling the people, people on my team to, to go to Costco, go to Pick and Save, go to Jimmy John's, and we bought a bunch of food, and we brought it last minute, and, and those who stayed, we were able to feed them, but it was an hour and a half after the event already started. Greater works doesn't mean we will do more spectacular things than Jesus. I, I won't be able to multiply loaves of bread and fish even if I wanted to. I will never be able to walk on water um, I can barely swim. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. I would never be able to walk in water. And if you go outside right now, grab some dirt and spit on it and make some mud and start walking towards me, I'm going to find that disrespectful. You know what I'm saying? I'm trying to keep my outfit clean, you know? What Jesus is saying to the disciples is that they will have greater reach than Jesus ever did. And what I mean by that is this. Jesus physically lived in a particular time in a particular place in this world. And, and his physical reach was to his 12 disciples and those in the surrounding geographical area. But his disciples are going to be sent out missionaries called to reach Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of this earth. And so that gospel went from Jerusalem southwest into Africa, east into Asia, north into Europe. And then eventually that gospel got on a boat and made its way to America. And, and, and as it comes to the Americas, several years come down, and, and you, if you're in this room right now, and you say you are a follower of Jesus, you are a product of the greater work that people since the time of Christ was able to fulfill because of Christ's empowerment in them. If you are a Christian, it is because people took the message and work of Jesus to you. And here's the crazy part. You get to do this too. You get to be a part of this greater work. Every time you tell your family, your friends, your coworkers about who Jesus is, you are extending that greater work that Jesus promises that his believers will be able to do. Verse 13 and 14 says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So, Another quick story. When I was uh, in, in a youth group, there was another girl I had a crush on. And uh, she said she only liked boys who played guitar. And so naturally, 
I got to learn how to play guitar, right? And so uh, the thing was, we were broke. We didn't have a lot of money. And, my, um, and I would remember my mom said, when I needed something, I could just pray about it. <laughs> and so I prayed about it. And I said, Jesus, uh, I pray that you put a guitar in my closet so I can learn how to play guitar so I can impress this girl. So I would go to the closet, open the door, and there's no guitar. And I closed the door. I was disappointed. I was like, oh, I forgot something. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I'd open the closet. There was no guitar. And I closed it. And then for the next, like, 20 minutes, I just adjusted the influx in my voice. Like, in Jesus' name, in, in Jesus' name. Or, like, I got, like, T.D. Jakes, in Jesus' name. Like, like I just I was trying to change it a bunch of different ways to try to. It never happened. There was no guitar. I never learned, guys. I know one song. It's terrible. I never learned, okay? Hear me clearly. God wants you to pray. Prayer is worship to God because it is the active acknowledgement of God's sovereignty in your life. Prayer is, is a gift given to us by Jesus. One of the things that Jesus accomplished on the cross is that the wall of division between us and the Father is broken and Jesus now gives us direct access to God because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And prayer changes us. And this is important because I think this is what we get prayer wrong. Uh, the more we pray, the more we are seeking God's presence and action in our life. But God didn't give us prayer so that we can treat him like a cosmic Santa. Like prayer isn't about just asking for stuff you want. That's what a genie is for. And like prayer isn't saying the right words in the right way for him to do something. That's called an incantation. That's literal witchcraft. The, to pray in Jesus' name is to say prayers that are consistent with Jesus' character and will. The disciples are all anxious. And the disciples are worried. And Jesus is comforting them. And he is saying that when you pray in his name, according to his character and will, those prayers will absolutely be answered. So the question we should be asking ourselves now is, how can we know Jesus' character and will? Well, let me give you this other story. When I was a kid, my mom would do this thing that was very frustrating every single time. Maybe some of y'all can relate. We would go to a grocery store, and after the end of shopping, we would get in line to the register, and then my mom would say, oh, I forgot something. Stay with the cart. I'll be right back. How much pressure that is. And so every single time, my mom would still be gone. I'm going to have to put stuff on the conveyor belt and start putting stuff there. And then the cashier has the audacity to ask me questions, right? Did you bring your own bag? Paper or plastic? How much money on this gift card? What's your rewards number? You know how much anxiety that is for a 12-year-old to answer all those questions at a, at a Kroger? <laughs> you know, like, that's terrifying, you know? So I would have to take a moment and think, how would my mom answer this question? Like, like and think through, how would my mom want these questions to be answered? So, so the only reason I know how to answer those questions is because she's my mom. And so I knew her. I lived with her. We talked a lot. We spent a lot of time with each other. So I could figure out how she would respond because I have spent time with her. Praying in Jesus' name is praying for things that are in accordance with all that his name stands for. Prayer is not asking for things, but it's about aligning our hearts to his. 
You, you praying in Jesus' name is actually you denying your own personal preferences and adopting the character of Jesus and asking for things that will glorify God. So you, you, you learn about his character and will the more you spend time with him, the more you spend time in God's word, the more you sit under godly teaching. And ironically, the more you pray to him, the more you'll learn who he is. If the only time you talk to God is when there is an emergency and you need something, that is a problem. Your, your parents don't like that, and neither does your heavenly father. So hear me out. Pray for healing. Pray for God's intervention in your life. Pray for all the things that are heavy in your heart. God wants to hear your prayers. It doesn't have to be well articulated. You don't have to pray in the King James with thys and thous and all that stuff. God listens to the prayers of children. He wants to hear your prayers too. But know this, Jesus does not promise to grant requests that are out of step with his character and his purposes. What Jesus does promise is that when we pray bold prayers that are aligned to his will, we should be ready to see God move in crazy ways. So pray for the salvation of your loved ones. Pray for the unity of the church. Pray, for, pray that you and I can love one another the same way Christ has loved us. Pray that we serve one another the same way Christ has served us. And when we pray those prayers in Jesus' name, he is promising us that he will answer those prayers. Jesus made his disciples anxious by telling them that someone was going to betray him and that he is going to go somewhere and they can't go with him. And he is telling his disciples to, to not be anxious by trusting in him. That they can trust him because they know that Jesus is the only way to the Father. They can trust him because Jesus is God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And Jesus gives them this Trinitarian truth that he is in the Father and the Father is in him. And they can trust him because Jesus is still working. Though he is leaving he has not abandoned them. They are going to do, be able to do greater works than he did. And, and, and he promises to answer those prayers when they pray in Jesus' name. So I asked this question earlier. When you are anxious and worried, what do you do? Where do you go? And how do you cope? Because if you feel unsettled in this world, if you feel like everything in this world is just bringing you anxiety and stress and anxiousness, that should be expected. C.S. Lewis put it like this. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. This world is going to be unsettling. Every single day there is something discouraging on the news. The news is either broadcasting fear or it's manufacturing fear. Social media is constantly making us discontent with our lives. Either intentionally or unintentionally, there are things that happen in our lives that make our life super hard. And Jesus is telling us to focus our eyes and trust in him. The reason why worship music calmed my, my heart in middle school and it's calming my heart today isn't because worship music is special. It's because that music is making me focus on Jesus. In a few weeks, we're going to get to John chapter 16 and Jesus, at that point, is still comforting his disciples. They're super anxious there. And this is what he says to them. He says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world.
Jesus has overcome this world. We can trust in him that in the end we will be all right. Because remember, Jesus went to go prepare a place for us. And it's in his father's house. And it's a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. And while he's there, he's going to come back one day. And we can, we can rest. We can be easy. Because, you know, when he comes back, he's going to take us back to his father's house. And we get to be with God forever. Ultimately, we can rest because we're going to go home one day. I can't wait to go home with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you because you're so good to us. You're merciful to us. You're kind to us. You're gracious to us. Lord, when, when there was no way and no reason to make a way, you provided a way. You made a way in Jesus. Lord, we are, we are grateful because this world you don't have to remind us that this world is full of fear and, and terror and anxiety and stress. We feel it every single day. We felt it on the way here. We're going to feel it when we leave this place. But Lord, you, could tell, you tell us that as Christians, we can live in this world a little differently than everyone else. We don't have to be afraid. Our hearts can be calm because you've made a way. Because Jesus is God. And Jesus is still working in our lives right now. We praise you, Lord, that you made a way for us so that we, we don't have to be stuck here in this world that brings full of fear and anxiety, but you have, you have promised us that you are going to take us home one day. Until then, Lord, help us to keep our eyes focused on you as we look forward to the day we get to be called home. In your son's name I pray, amen.